I often ask people at the start of interviews and just kind of a, you know, warm conversational gambit, how's the retreat going? And a lot of people, you know, respond and tell me how the retreat's going. And every once in a while, the question just strikes someone dumb. They go, ah. Because when you think about it, it's really a hard question to answer, isn't it? Because usually it's been four days since I've seen somebody. And in those four days, the retreat has gone every which way for people. Now, it's really hard to pick out, you know, one How do you edit your experience of four days down to one or two sentences to offer to a teacher? It's a great skill. Of course, this problem gets compounded many times when you leave the retreat, whether it's three or six weeks later, and you go home. And all the people that have missed you for three or six weeks ask you, gosh, how was your retreat? (laughs) And it wasn't just four days ago that you saw them. How do you edit down three or six weeks of some of the most intense experience of your life into another conversational gambit? So I want to give you a tip. This is the secret teaching. What I usually do is I just say, it was great. And that's usually all they want to hear. <laughs> so the conversation just wraps up there, and then we move on to, you know, the basketball scores or something like that. But the, the quickness of change in retreat, I think, is really one of the most striking features about it. Mental states come and go, and the body feels good, and then it feels bad, and the energy is up one day, and then we're sleepy the next, and always in flux. This is actually sometimes kind of frustrating, but the Buddha talked about it as one of the most important areas of learning in our whole lives. When he described the way things are in this life, the nature of things, he talked about three characteristics of everything that exists, everything that comes into being. And these three characteristics he described as the characteristics of impermanence or change, the quality of unsatisfactoriness or suffering, and the quality of selflessness or not-self that pertain to all things that arise. I sort of think of these three as the facts of life for grown-ups. So given that um, we're all adults, this is a good topic for us to look into. In the Pali, these three are called anicca, for impermanence, Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, for selflessness. So these are the three qualities of things that I'd like to look into tonight. In regards to impermanence, the Buddha said, foremost among footprints is the elephant's. Foremost among reflections is that on impermanence. He considered it one of the highest areas to learn about of any in the whole realm of Dharma. So no matter what our experience is, if we tune into this simple truth, we can just remind ourselves, whatever I'm experiencing, this too shall pass. The Buddha commented there's a great deal of wisdom in that knowledge, in that reflection. When we look about the world and what we as humans get up to in the world, it really seems like we spend a lot of our time and energy trying to find some security. It's as though we recognize our vulnerability 
and look for some form of security, something lasting that we can rest upon in life. One of the many areas that we look in, one of the main areas we look in is a personal relationship. And often the sense is if we get this part of our life together, it will really solve a lot of problems. Reminds me of a number of years ago, I went on an extended meditation retreat. It was a two-month period of retreat. I was with a partner at that time who decided not to go on the retreat, but chose instead to uh, stay at home and get involved with a certain spiritual scene that was happening near our home with this teacher who was operating very much in a guru uh, style and demanded a lot of devotion and surrender. And I started the retreat, which was very much like this one. It was just a silent uh, retreat of sitting and walking. And I entered the retreat with a great deal of confidence. And I thought, you know, this relationship is really the bedrock of my life. <laughs> I thought, this is the most solid thing in my life. I'm really grateful for it. I should have recognized at that point there was a little red flag going up in my consciousness, but I didn't. And I completed the retreat. It was quite intensive, practicing as you all are here. And you are beginning to get a sense, probably, that you get a little bit sensitive in these settings. (laughs) Little things that might just be sort of a pebble dropping in the pond in outer life have these huge ripples when your mind gets quieted down. So like you, I came out of my two-month retreat and I was very open, very vulnerable. Called my partner as I got out of the retreat and uh, said, how are you doing? And I found that she had become very, very involved in this other scene and had gone through a big surrender to this uh, guru. And when I heard that, my stomach started uh, tying up in knots. I felt this huge wave of anxiety come over me because I had seen a lot of couples get involved in this other scene that she was in. And every time a couple had gotten involved in the scene, whether one or both of them were really into it, the relationship had fallen apart. And I've observed that scene over many years now, and that's still the case, actually, with that particular scene. I won't name any names, but still see that pattern. So as I started to realize what was was going on, I felt like the bottom had fallen out of my life. Where there used to be a stomach, there was just kind of a yawning abyss. And I felt a huge amount of insecurity come up because this thing that had been my foundation was being shaken. I didn't know if the relationship was going to make it over this hurdle or not. Looking at that scene, I really believe that, if you don't mind my being a little bit catty, (laughs) there was was the expectation from this guru that anyone in relationship with him would have no other love but him. And I honestly believe that's why he actually forced people to cut away their relationships. So I could see this in our future. I could see it heading that way, and I felt very, very 
anxious for quite a while. It was quite a while before I was due to return home. And over that whole period, I just felt ungrounded, insecure, fearful, nervous, etc., etc. Wrapping up the story, when I finally got home, we went through a lot of conversation, as you can imagine. I felt that I did a little bit of deprogramming, and my partner at the time decided to move away from the guru and basically re-enter the Vipassana fold, which as you know is warm and friendly and completely (laughs) non-threatening. Very supportive of relationships. So we, we carried forward for some time longer. But it was a very... (laughs) Not all relationships are meant to be. It was a really clear teaching to me of the impermanent nature of things, and even something in which I had put a lot of faith and a lot of store. And also a real teaching about the attachment that I had formed and how upsetting it was to have it questioned. It hadn't even gone away. It had just been questioned and I felt like the bottom had fallen out. So we look in a lot of areas of our life to uh, find some way to keep from feeling this kind of anxiety, to find some kind of security through relationship, through family, through our jobs, through our friendships, through possessions, through having a nice home. And in one way or another, you know, we often spend a lot of time trying to make sure that those stay in some kind of order. There's even kind of a project that has come about in the 80s and 90s, which is called Getting My Life Together. Kind of a new project because we have so many pieces that we want to weave together, you know, all of us relationship, practice, being away for long periods of time and hoping that your partner's there when you get home. Um, (laughs) Being away from work for long periods of time and hoping that there are still people who want to hire you when you get home. Family, children, and so on. So we always are hoping that we're going to put all these pieces together in some configuration where they're really going to kind of snap into place and stay that way forever. And I'll just report from my own side, it hasn't happened yet. There are a lot of really um, beautiful things happening in my life, and there's always something that seems a little out of balance. Just a simple example, I, got, I started into teaching in 1984 in England, moved to the States in 88, and put teaching aside for five years while I went to work in the corporate world. I worked for Microsoft. <laughs> before they got... (laughs) I know there are a lot of Apple lovers in the Dharma community. This is before they got hit with any antitrust charges. It was after I left the company that it all went downhill. And came back into teaching in uh, 1994, about five years ago. And being a new teacher in the States, I really felt that uh, it was incumbent on me to uh, go to the places that the established teachers weren't so crazy about going, you know, like North Dakota in the middle of February. (laughs) And so I was accepting all the invitations that came, and I found I was just traveling too much. I was away from home too much. I was away from 
my relationship was tiring. So just in the last couple of years, I've started to cut down a little on the travel. And since Spirit Rock is now here, I'm looking forward to spending more time here. Well, just as I'm sort of starting to be more of a homebody, my wife Sally is getting into the teacher training program with Jack Cornfield, and now she's going to be the one going to North Dakota in February and being away. And Eugene is actually spiriting her off to St. Louis to teach with him in a couple of months. So just as one part comes into balance, often another part slips out. Putting it all together may never happen. Another feature of impermanence. So we have to learn to flow with these changing conditions all the time. And what better place than a retreat where the conditions change as quickly as the weather. And it's such a great metaphor for this retreat. One day rain, one day sun. One day rain, one day sun. It's really a great reminder. One of the changing conditions that we all live with is the body and the aging that the body goes through. One of my friends started to go quite, uh, quite bald in his 20s, and it was a blow to his vanity. It was definitely a blow. But he said actually the most difficult thing about it is that when he washed his face and he got to his forehead, he didn't know where to stop. <laughs> For myself, I started to <laughs> balding hasn't been my problem, but the, the, the coloring has been my problem. And this coloring started to go when I was about 35. I thought I was still quite a young man. And I was at a gathering somewhere. I got up and walked away. And the guy who was sitting next to us, who we didn't know, turned and asked my friend, oh, who was that man? And uh, she said, what man? And uh, he said, that middle-aged man who was sitting next to you. I just couldn't believe it. Middle-aged at 35. So I've been dealing with that one ever since, and now it sort of fits. It's okay. Dealing with the changes in the body. And of course, we all know where those changes are heading. The Buddha talked about it often. Aging leads to illness, and illness leads to death. So in the Buddhist tradition, this reflecting on aging and death is really an integral part of the practice. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the cornerstone of our meditation practice, the Buddha gives a number of reflections that he offers to practitioners, integral part of the practice, to reflect on uh, their own body after death to reflect on our own corpse in various stages of decomposition and decay. This awareness of our own mortality is really integral to the practice. And you know, it's something that I think we need a little bit of encouragement to reflect on. You may have heard about this poll. They polled people in America and asked them what was the scariest thing in their lives or in their thoughts. Fear of death came in number four. Number one was speaking in public. (laughs) Now that could be a statement of great courage on the part of the American people, but I somehow suspect that it's more a function of deep denial. 
that we just aren't comfortable holding this thought of our own death. It's frightening. It's sad. It's something that as a culture we spend a lot of time avoiding. I was doing a long personal retreat a couple of years ago and this reflection came up really strongly for me. One of the things that I realized in thinking about this is that my own death seems accommodatable. It seems manageable. It seems holdable. But what really touched me was the reflection that at some point in the future I will probably witness Sally's death or Sally will be there witnessing my death. And that for me carried even more sadness than just the idea of my own dying. The Buddha said that in many ways death is like this great mountain that's rolling over the landscape toward us and obliterating everything in its wake. And he asked the question, what can one do in the face of this kind of situation, the oncoming inevitability of death? And his response was, the only thing to do is to practice the Dharma, to live with as much calm as we can, and to do good. This is really the crux of life in the face of our death. Fortunately, you're in just the right place for this instruction. The Tibetans say that impermanence has four ends. The end of birth is death. The end of coming together is separation. The end of accumulation is dispersal. And the end of all building is destruction. We get so involved with all the things of this world and of our lives that sometimes we forget this. This is from an ancient Indian sutra. Some children were playing beside the ocean. They made castles of sand, and each child defended his castle and said, this one is mine. They kept their castle separate and would not allow any mistakes about which was whose. When the castles were all finished, one child kicked over someone else's castle and completely destroyed it. The owner flew into a rage, pulled the other child's hair, struck him with his fist, and bawled out, He has spoiled my castle. Come along, all of you, and help me to punish him as he deserves. The others all came to his help. They beat the child with a stick and then stamped on him as he lay on the ground. Then they went on playing in their sandcastles, each saying, This is mine. No one else may have it. Keep away. Don't touch my castle. But evening came. It was getting dark, and they all thought they ought to be going home. No one now cared what became of his castle. One child stamped on his, another pushed his over with both hands. They turned away and went back, each to his home. And that night, the tide obliterated all traces. So we look at the outer situation, seeing this fact of change and mortality, and realize that there isn't anything lasting to hold on to. And perhaps from that understanding, we come to meditation practice. There's a terrific promise in meditation practice. There's the promise of release, of freedom, 
It's an interesting promise because our understanding of the end of meditation practice, which the Buddha called right understanding, one of the factors in the Eightfold Path, evolves as we practice. All the path factors develop as we practice the path. Right understanding evolves likewise. When we come into meditation practice, we may think that the third noble truth, which the Buddha expressed as the end of suffering lies in the end of craving, we may think that that actually says a lasting happiness is found in the end of craving. I know when I came into practice, as Eugene said, confessing my delusions, I came looking for the security through meditation that I wasn't able to find through outer circumstances. And thinking that I would find some way, some state of mind that I could put together through meditation that would last and that would keep me in a permanent state of happiness and well-being. Actually, what the Third Noble Truth is pointing to is something a little more subtle. It's pointing to the end of suffering, but it doesn't say what form that takes. And as time has gone on, I've come to feel that it doesn't, that Third Noble Truth is not pointing to a static mental state of unending happiness seen as a particular way of being but it's rather pointing to an equilibrium and a peacefulness that can be present in any form of experience. So when I came in, I was definitely looking for a fixed kind of security for meditation. As I've practiced, my understanding of that has changed a bit. Someone actually asked the Buddha, for someone who is completely enlightened, do they dwell in a perpetual state of well-being? The Buddha said, of one who has become fully awakened, there is nothing by which they can be measured. There is no static state by which such a person can be defined. So in retreat, as we begin to explore, we see that we're really involved in a microcosm of life here. Just as our outer life has changed, the inner life here is also changed. Sounds, breath, thoughts, all coming and going, emotions and states of mind rapidly changing. One of the most interesting areas to open up, and several of you have talked about this in interviews, is looking closely at the experience of the body at this point in the retreat. Normally we take the body as something really solid. If there's anything that's going to be dependable and lasting and that we can count on, Here it is. It's the body. And we remember from our third grade health textbooks, you know, we peel off one layer and then there are the bones and we peel another layer. There are the arteries and the internal organs and it all seems very, very um, complete, very fixed. But a curious thing is when we actually explore with our awareness in the deepest intimacy that we can have with this body, we get a different picture we start to touch the bare actuality of our physical nature and we see that there is nothing solid in the experience. But rather there are just pulsing, changing vibrations, sensations, flux 
throughout this whole field. This is a very liberating insight. We take leg as something solid, but when we look closely, we see that all the sensations are just rapidly blinking on and off. Nothing fixed here, but a whole field of change. Some people actually experience the body seeming to dissolve in a sitting, just held in the space of awareness. Impermanence can also show itself in a project of trying to get our practice together or keep our practice together. I did this a lot in the early years when I was doing retreats. I would think that I couldn't really start to meditate until my body was free of pain, until it was clear of tension or knots or holding. So if I'd find an area that was tight in my body, I'd direct my attention there, and over time I got somewhat skilled with some concentration, some mindfulness, in bringing change into that sensation. If I could stay with it long enough, I could open it up, I could sort of tap into the vibratory nature, and I'd work on that one and get it a little bit open, and then maybe there'd be another holding over here. So I'd go work on that for a while, and after, you know, half a day or so, I'd actually experience some ease and flow and openness in the body. And then I could settle down and meditate. That would last about one sitting. The next sitting I'd come back, and it would all have gone (laughs) scrunch. It would all have contracted again. Why? Because the mind that caused contraction never had been really looked at. As long as the mind is going to contract around greed or aversion, the body will follow. I was trying to untangle the body without looking at the source which is the mind. It was a very, very fleeting and temporary fix. I spent a lot of time doing it, and I would have been a lot better advised to just live with some degree of tension and instead relax into the experience. It would have been a much smarter thing to do. It took me years to learn it. So I'm offering it to you as a shortcut. The body keeps changing, goes from comfortable to uncomfortable. Nature is a great teacher about impermanence. It's a lovely thing about being in this setting. You can spend a lot of time out of doors and let that uh, truth of nature's change come into your bones. The Buddha really encouraged the nuns and monks to live simply in nature, to live close to nature, because then the teachings of change just come into our marrow. We see in nature how the clouds are always coming and going, the planets are shifting, the um, phases of the moon we stay in touch with when we're on a retreat like this, whereas in city life we might go weeks and not even know what phase the moon is in. We see life and death living close to nature. We were practicing here in November, the old students' retreat, and one evening during the Dharma talk there was this heart-wrenching scream from outside. We didn't know what it was, but when we went to look later, there was a dead deer. And it had apparently been attacked by a dog or a pair of dogs that had gotten onto the land. It was a small deer. And by the time we reached it, it was already dead. Probably its neck had been broken. It was a a young deer. So a number of us gathered around and sent it metta uh, for a while. 
And after doing that, a lot of people came by and um, looked at the deer and reflected on its passing, sent metta. And then uh, it was moved out of the retreat area. Actually, the Humane Society was supposed to come pick it up. The caretakers moved it so they could come pick it up, and they never came. So over the next days, you could actually observe uh, what was happening to the deer's body, and it disappeared in fairly short order. There are a lot of vultures here, as you may have noticed. The birds with the really big wingspans that you see around a lot, circling and gliding, they look like hawks from a distance, but in fact, uh, almost all of them are turkey vultures. They're eaters of dead flesh. They're carrion eaters. The way you can tell a turkey vulture is that its wings go up in kind of a V, whereas hawks' wings are much more horizontal when they fly or glide. So most of the big birds you see circling here are actually vultures. So the vultures had done their work at picking apart the flesh of the deer, and we also have coyotes near here, and they were visiting and eating parts of the deer. So in a very relatively short period of time, that deer's body was just gone. This is one of the teachings of nature, that everything that comes into existence really does pass away. It's not the case that that deer is hanging out somewhere in what we call the past. That deer was here, and now she's really gone. One of my Tibetan teachers told me that a sign in your meditation that you're seeing clearly is that you're in touch with this facet of change. This is something you can actually tune into in a period of sitting. As you're with the breath, as you're with sounds, as you're with sensations, as you're with thoughts, are you sensing the nature of change, the arising and passing in that moment? Or have you concretized something? Have you made a fixation, a solid viewpoint or perspective out of a fantasy, a memory, a plan for the future, some fixation of concept? Look closely and see which you're in touch with. If we're in touch with the changing nature of things, we're in touch with things as they are at least to some very important degree. When we get fixated in concepts, past and future, we lose touch with that quality of change. When we look closely in our practice, we see that all our experience is just arising and passing moment after moment after moment. This is really one of the key insights in meditation. This is one of the reasons that we really suggests that you develop a stability of attention. It's so that you can open to this perception of change in a very clear way. We can see change in our daily life. It's almost an intellectual uh, perception. But in meditation, when we can really still the mind and we see this moment by moment arising and passing, it hits us in a lot deeper way. This is why we stress some precision in paying attention to changing objects. It's not just breath watching, it's not just body watching, but it's in order to see the nature of things, in order to see the true nature of all the appearances. When I was practicing in Thailand, I spent 
quite a bit of time at Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery in the south of Thailand. Ajahn Buddhadasa was really one of the great masters of the last 50 years in Thailand. He died a few years ago. He was a meditator, he was a scholar, he was an uh, iconoclast. He didn't do things in the traditional way. Typically in Thailand, the style of Buddhism is very devotional. A lot of statues, a lot of candles, a lot of incense, a lot of bowing, a lot of prayer, a lot of chanting. Ajahn Buddhadasa wasn't interested in that side of the Dharma. He was really only interested in wisdom. His teaching and his whole monastery was set up just for wisdom. Rich donors would come along and say, I'd like to give you a big gold Buddha statue. Where could we put it? And he'd say, uh, we don't take statues here, I'm sorry. He did not have a single statue of the Buddha in the whole monastery. The only thing he had is there was a semicircle where the monks would gather to eat uh, their morning meal. It was a one meal a day kind of place. And in the center of that semicircle, there were three stones piled on top of each other that sort of suggested a pyramid. That was the closest approximation to a Buddha image that he would allow. So I appreciated his teaching a lot. And during the time we were there, there were about uh, half a dozen of us Westerners. He spoke pretty good English. And we got to meet with him once a week uh, for teachings that he would just give to us in English. It was really wonderful to hang out with him. Had a great deal of spaciousness, a great deal of kindness. So we had been uh, with, with him for some weeks, and this was the last week of our teachings, and this is what he told us to do. He said, there are these uh, bases for sense contact. He said, there are the six senses, the five senses of the body, sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, and the sense door of the mind, which in Buddhism is considered the sixth sense. And for sight, for example, for a sight to arise, you have to have an eye that's working. You have to have a sense organ. You have to have a form that's something out there that can be seen. And you have to have consciousness. You have to have the vitality of a living body to have eye consciousness. When these three come together, the consciousness, the form, and the working eye, sense organ, then a sight can arise. So these are the three bases related to sight, the organ, the object, and the consciousness. These three uh, bases are also there in each of the other five senses. So we have six senses, three bases in each. That makes 18 of these sense bases, which are called the ayatanas, which just means sense bases. He said, every time you experience something in any one of the six senses, I want you to look at the three ayatanas, the three sense bases for that experience, and I want you to understand the origin. You know, what conditions caused that? Nothing comes out of nothing. Everything arises because of prior conditions. So take a look so that you start to understand these things came out of prior conditions. Notice the moment of arising. Notice its persistence. Notice its passing away. So we had 18 sense bases, and we had four things to notice in relation to each one. 
when you go through your experience in that level of detail, everything that can come into your consciousness can be examined in that way. You become very clear. Everything we experience is of the nature to arise and to pass away. You really know there's nothing fixed. Nothing fixed that we can apprehend with our senses anywhere. When the truth of this degree of impermanence starts to dawn, it can be a little bit unsettling. You may feel that this is a terrible tragedy. You may feel this is great. Uh, A lot of you know Wes Nisker, who teaches here. One of our teachers and also an author and former radio personality. And uh, Wes has a very lovely daughter, um, who I think now is about uh, 20, 21 years old. Grew up in a Dharma household. Both the parents were involved in the Dharma. And when she was 14, very precocious, she asked her mom, uh, because she'd heard this buzzword of duality, this word duality, which is the sense of self being separate from other. She said, Mom, this word duality you guys are talking about, is this duality good or bad? Could ask the same thing about impermanence. Is it good or is it bad? Well, it's not really either. It's just kind of the way things are. It's the truth of the way things are. In relation to the hindrances, impermanence is really something quite wonderful. (laughs) Because when the hindrances arise, you know, in a way, you never have to do anything with them except pay attention. And in time, every one of them will go. This is really a terrific freedom. Because you realize... You can feel anything. You can open yourself to feel any of the difficulties. Wanting, aversion, dullness, restlessness, or doubt. And you don't even have to do anything, and of themselves, they'll also go. So this really gives a great deal of freedom. You don't have to hold yourself back. I'd like to read this poem from uh, Rilke, Reiner Maria Rilke wrote a book of poems with a very uh, religious orientation when he was in his early 20s. This is a particular poem that he wrote imagining uh, that God has shaped the human being and is is giving the human being some advice before the human being leaves this field of creation and makes the journey into life. God speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your memory, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Now, give me your hand. Let everything happen to you. Just keep going. No feeling is final. This is really the sense of our practice. You can just keep going with your awareness and not worry that you're going to get caught or stuck or hung up anywhere. 
because the feelings will keep changing. We see that in the whole field of our experience, mental, physical, internal, external, there's nothing really to hold on to. Everything is of the nature of arising and also passing very quickly. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and his attendant for many years, asked the Buddha once, you talk, sir, about this thing called the world. What do you mean by world? In Pali, the term for world is loka, sometimes also translated as realm, this realm that we're living in, this earth that we're living on. What do you mean by this term loka or world? And the Buddha did a pun on the word loka. And his response was, it disintegrates. And the word in Pali for disintegrates is paloka. It disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. This is the nature of what we're living in. We're living in a realm that is constantly disintegrating, that is constantly dissolving. It's why there's no fixed security. The Buddha said our situation is like a man who is being uh, swept away by a river, who's caught in the current of the river, and as he's flowing swiftly downstream, keeps putting his hand up onto the bank to grab hold of a lump of grass. But because the current is so strong and the grass is so weak, the grass just pulls out in his hand and he's swept further downstream. And then he hangs on to another piece of grass, but it also pulls out and he keeps being swept away. This is our situation if we're clinging, if we're trying to hold on to changing phenomena for some security. Joseph Goldstein said, this point in practice is kind of like jumping out of an airplane and realizing that you don't have a parachute. It can be unsettling. We're going to leave you hanging there for a minute and we'll come back. So if we're continuing to look for our happiness in things to hang on to, we're bound to suffer. You can see it very simply in this microcosm of sitting practice. If we come in and sit and we have a difficult sitting, the suffering is immediate. The pain is immediate. We want something pleasant to happen. Something painful is happening. There's a disappointment. If you have a good sitting and you go out and you want it to happen again, there's probably going to be disappointment when the next time the quality of the sitting changes. So if we have direct pain, it's suffering. If we have pleasure and we want to repeat it, eventually it's suffering also. Ajahn Chah said it's like grabbing a snake. As long as we're clinging, if you grab onto the head of the snake and it bites you, that's pain. If you grab onto the tail of the snake and you're holding on, in a very short period of time the head swings around and bites you, and that's pain too. The Pali word for this uh, quality is dukkha, usually translated suffering, sometimes translated unsatisfactoriness, sometimes translated unreliability. The world is unreliable because it can't give us the security that we're looking for. This is really our dilemma as human beings, that we all have a deep yearning 
for security, for safety, for a happiness that's not temporary, not transient. And yet, the world isn't capable of giving us that. The objects of this world are not capable of giving us that. This can actually bring up a lot of compassion because it's our shared situation. It's a situation that each one of us is in. In meditation practice, we start to see that there's no state of mind that we can put together that's going to last in this way. But a very interesting thing is that in any moment in which we let go of clinging in its forms of greed, aversion, and confusion, in that very moment of letting go, we find that there's a peace available. That kind of peace may not be a temporary thing. Maybe it's a case that that kind of peace is like a foundation for all our experience that is available anytime we're not disturbing it. And as such, maybe that peace is not subject to arising and passing. Let's leave that for just a moment and talk about the last of the three qualities or characteristics of existence called not-self or anatta. Basically, the Buddha said the root question in spiritual practice is to find the answer to this question, what am I, or who am I? In order to look at this question fresh, we probably need to take a look at what we commonly mean by that word I. It's a word that we use every day. When you actually stop to think about it, don't you have a sense that there's some way in which you have been uh, constant from the time you were very young until today. That there's a way in which the same person went to kindergarten on the opening day when you had to leave your mother for the first time, up to right now as you sit in this hall. So that this word I, I think if you look into it a little bit, comes with a sense of continuity, an ongoing sameness to who we are. Even though our bodies have changed, our thoughts have changed, our moods have changed, but we have some sense of an ongoing center through all those changes. That's the self that the Buddha said needs questioning. This ongoing center. Is there such a thing? This is something that really needs to be looked into in each of our meditation practices. One way that the Buddha described it is by saying, does the sense of I ever arise by itself? Or does it only arise in relation to other things? In other words, pain comes in this thing we call me. Then arises, I have a pain in my knee. Or, my knee hurts. Or, I'm in pain. A thought comes up, about what we 
want to do after the retreat. And the I gets formed. I want to go there. I want to do that. I want to see that person. A mood comes of sadness or happiness. I'm sad. I'm happy. So an interesting area to investigate is when these experiences come, knee pain, sadness, thoughts about the future, can there just be the pain? Can there just be the sadness? Can there just be the thought without someone who owns it? And experience for yourself in your practice the difference between just noting pain and noting when you call it my pain. When you just think future thought or when you think my future thought, when you think anger or happiness or when you think my anger and my happiness, the my, the Buddha said, is actually something extra. It's not intrinsic to the experience. It's something we generate out of our own thoughts. What's the experience like if there's just the anger, just the knee pain, just the feeling? This is clear seeing. The sense of identification, of joining it with an eye, is something extra. The clear seeing is just to see the thing itself as it is. When we see in that way, we start to get a sense There's actually no one at the center of all this. There's no ongoing entity in here or behind the eyes to whom this is all happening. What we are is just the changing process of our six senses. All the facets arising and passing moment after moment. There's no solid ongoing center that it's all happening to. After a talk on impermanence at a retreat in the desert, one of the meditators asked the next day, is this just a bitter pill that we're supposed to swallow? Why do you tell us all this stuff? This is not very good news. Actually, there are two levels of the answer to that. The first answer is no, it's not just a bitter pill. It's actually very freeing to see impermanence. The Buddha said that If you see impermanence over and over again, it leads to the end of craving, it leads to the end of ignorance, and it leads to the end of the conceit I am, or the belief that I am something or other. The point in talking about all these three is really to encourage us, to inspire us not to cling. Clinging is more to the heart of things. These are all pointers or ways of looking at the mind that doesn't cling. In fact, this mind that doesn't cling is very closely related to that peace that I mentioned a few minutes earlier, that peace that may not be subject to arising and passing, that peace that may be a kind of baseline or foundation or ground for our experience. When the mind is not involved in clinging, see what your experience is. See if it has this quality of peacefulness to it. When there's no clinging to the breath, nor to the sensations in the body, 
nor to the mood or state of mind. And yet there's a fullness of presence. There's a fullness of awareness that's not of past and future. In that very moment, is there any suffering? Is there any conflict? Is there any problem? This opening into the realm of non-clinging is really what's being pointed to by these three characteristics. The three characteristics themselves are not an ultimate truth. It's so precise the way the Buddha phrased it. These are the characteristics or the qualities of existence. That means that which comes into existence. But any kind of ultimate truth has to encompass existence as well as non-existence. Just as in this room, nothing would be possible if it weren't for the space that's between us all. The space is every bit as important as the appearances or those things that exist at this moment in the room. So impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self are really pointers to this dimension of non-clinging in which something more ultimate can be discovered. I did a session once with a great Zen master named Sasaki Roshi. And one of the koans he posed during that retreat is, how do you catch the wind? I don't think he was a big Donovan fan, but it was a great koan. How do you catch the wind? I never actually got a chance to give him my answer to this koan, but my first inclination was something like this, grasping empty air. But you know, that's what we're doing all the time. We're grasping empty, passing appearances. I realized he would have just shooed me out of the room and rung his bell and dismissed me. And when I thought about it later, the gesture that came to me was this. The way that a sail catches the wind, by being fully open, by being fully outstretched, by having an awareness that embraces the arisings as well as the space that contains all the arisings. That space of non-clinging is a space that can't be harmed. Because nothing has contracted into a small self that can be threatened. This is the sense of emptiness. An open awareness, fully present, that embraces all the appearances. And in this, it's as though we've jumped out of the plane We realize we don't have a parachute, but we also know there's no ground to fall into. This is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, like a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flickering lamp, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a mirage, a dream. 
When we can hold this dreamlike nature of the world with full awareness and full presence, there's a terrific freedom in that experience. The Buddha put it this way, Our experience is empty and insubstantial to one who sees it wisely. So should this body and mind be looked upon by a practitioner with strong energy, continually aware, clearly aware and mindful. Let them leave behind all bondage, make a refuge for herself, and, as though her head was on fire, act to gain the deathless. Nibbana. Let's sit for just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.